Campaigns are intensely public things. I mean, they have to be. How else can they convince you their candidate, their idea, their bond package or constitutional amendment is possibly worth your contribution, your volunteer time, or most importantly, your vote? But campaigns are like restaurants. Their highly designed ambiance and squeaky clean public appearance gives way once you pass through those swinging double doors in the back, which leads you to where the sausage is made. And it's messy back there. It's an area normally off limits to us mere mortals. But what if there was a candidate willing to give you a tour of the art, science, and sometimes shenanigans of campaigning? It sounds fun, right? So let's make this official. I, Tom Bullock, am officially, not really, running for office. Which is why I found myself in a room in Charlotte which, once every 370 days, goes from sounding like this to this. <laughs> Welcome to Candidate Me. Episode 1. So you want to be a candidate? Well, this is a great time to start. Every year is an election year in North Carolina, but these odd-numbered years are when that old adage that all politics is local finally rings true. Off-year elections are about very local races, like city council and school board, or the big one this year, mayor of Charlotte. So what office am I officially not really running for? Let's shoot for the top for two reasons. One, even pretend candidates have high aspirations. And two, it's an office I am totally unqualified for. No, really. I don't live in Charlotte. And? You've got to be a resident of that area that you're running for. So hence, you can't run. Now that's about as stern a response as you're ever going to get from Michael Dickerson. He's the director of elections for Mecklenburg County. Normally, the offices of the Mecklenburg County Board of Elections are pretty quiet. The smallish lobby slash reception area is normally rather devoid of people. But on a particular day... They'll, they'll queue up anywhere from about you know, the curb, then coming in here. One single day, which rolls around every two years... People, some people bring entertainment to the parking lot, uh, little bands or something like that. This place goes bonkers. <laughs> Welcome to the first day of the candidate filing period. And this is what democracy sounds and feels like. It's loud, crowded, hot. It's like this office has been inundated by a polite political horde. And Dickerson loves it. Oh yeah, this is, and we don't call it circus. We want to be polite. Uh, this is center of activity, uh, shall we say. It's hard to tell from the sound of the crowd, but this isn't a unified political horde. It's really a bunch of micro-hordes, some bigger than others. Each supports a particular candidate in a particular race, each with different broad characteristics that may be best described with a song. Now, stay with me here. I promise you'll see what I mean. First, here's the song. I'm picking Coldplay's Adventure of a Lifetime because, I mean, come on, the name fits for someone launching a campaign. And like politics, this song can elicit strong feelings either for it or against it. And finally, 
there is simply an amazing number of covers of this particular tune. So here goes. First, there's the political equivalent of a well-trained jazz singer. They can scat the tune even if this is their first political race. These candidates are well-funded. Their fans sport professionally printed signs and shirts and call out the occasional team cheer. Let's go! On the other end of the spectrum are the campaigns with little to no money. Their signs, handmade. The song is the same, the sound, decidedly low-tech. Next, throw in the incumbents who know this tune so well they could play the melody with a single hand. There are other types of candidates as well, harder to characterize so broadly, but all these camps are trying to do the same thing. Have an idea, an issue, a take, basically the political equivalent of a catchy hook, which will launch them into political office. Each candidate, somewhat patiently, waits their turn to step up to a bank of computers manned by county election staff. My name is John Powell, and I'm running for Charlotte City Council at large. I'm Priscilla Johnson. I'm running for Charlotte City Council District 4. I'm Tark Scott Bakari, and I'm running for Charlotte City Council District 6. They give their name, address, what office they're running for. Larkin Eggleston, running for Charlotte City Council District 1. Daniel Herrera, and I'm running for uh, Charlotte City Council District 3. Claire Green Fallon, I am, this is my, will be my fourth term. They're asked if they've been convicted of a felony. If the answer is yes, then they can only run for office if the terms of their sentence have been completely fulfilled. If a candidate qualifies for office, they have to plunk down a filing fee. It will cost you five bucks to be a candidate for mayor of Huntersville or Davidson. A dollar amount low enough, the county will let you pay the filing fee in cash. But if you're running for an office where the fee is more than $50, bring a check. And every office up for grabs in Charlotte is check turf. It will cost you $248 to file for mayor, 192 bucks if you want to vie for a seat on city council. Election director Michael Dickerson has held this post for 20 years, and he's learned a lot over that time, like never count any candidate out. Sure, you've seen candidates who you think, oh my gosh, they, they should spend that filing fee somewhere else and be careful with judgments because they're out there and they know what they're doing. They know how to make a campaign work. and. And they had the right message, and they can get that out to everybody. He's also seen a number of gimmicks to pay that requisite filing fee. Years ago, they would come in with uh, pennies. In a big jar. One, the candidate claimed, for every person who wanted them to run. And in, uh, I guess, an amazing coincidence, the pennies would always add up to the exact amount needed to file. That's all well and good. That looks good for the camera. But you need to go get me a check. The filing fees are universal, but here's something that will likely surprise you. Candidates for mayor in Pineville, Mint Hill, Huntersville, Davidson, Cornelius, Matthews, and their town councils or boards, they're all officially nonpartisan races, as are seats on the school board. But in Charlotte, these races are partisan affairs, and you have to be registered as a Democrat, Republican, or Libertarian for at least 90 days in order to qualify for the primary. And that's it. If you're a member of one of these three political parties officially recognized by North Carolina, it's pretty easy peasy. But what if 
you're a would-be candidate from another political party, and there are a lot of them out there. Or what if you are like me, a member of the fastest-growing group of registered voters, not just here in Mecklenburg County, but the entire state? What would an unaffiliated candidate have to do to get on the ballot? Again, Michael Dickerson. What if I'm unaffiliated? Can I still run? Sure you can, uh, but that now requires a collection of signatures that I can then certify, and then I can get you on the general election ballot. So, hey, you can skip the primary, and you get roughly six extra weeks to get those signatures. But hold your applause. An unaffiliated candidate needs to garner 4% of the voters eligible to cast a ballot in that particular race. That's another way of saying 4% of turnout. The last municipal primary back in 2015 saw overall turnout of just 8.8%. If I was really running for Charlotte mayor, I'd need at least 21,873 names on my petition to qualify. That is 9,000 more signatures than people who actually voted for the two candidates in the Republican primary, and roughly 10,000 more votes than Democrat Jennifer Roberts received the same night. So I asked Michael Dickerson. It is a pretty significant hurdle for that group to have its own kind of representative. But you're, you're lumping all unaffiliates as a group. They may be Democrats or they may be Republicans, but they're not satisfied with the party right now. So would you want to have an unaffiliated primary? I, I mean, that may, you may have something there. Yeah, you, you may go somewhere on that. But you would, not, you would not have anything that generally unifies them as being, as Democrats, you know they're going to be this, as Republicans, this. As unaffiliates, well, we just not siding with either side is the, is the issue. But, Dickerson is quick to add, unaffiliated voters are entitled to participate in either primary. Oh, and fear not, my not real campaign will continue. Up next, we bring in the experts to tell us what's happening with the real candidates behind the scenes and get their completely biased views on this year's races when Candidate Me continues. I'm Tom Bullock, and this is Candidate Me. Now, my campaign may be officially not real, but there are plenty of actual candidates out there, and many have hired very real political consultants to help their chances. So we brought in two of them, both now old hands in local races, to tell us what's going on behind the scenes. I'm Dan McCorkle, Democrat since birth. I'm working for uh, City Council at Large, Dimple Ajmera, uh, District 4 City Council, Greg Phipps. Plus a few others which had yet to file when this interview took place. So... That's our Democrat. All right, Larry, your turn. My name is Larry Shaheen, Jr., founder of Carolina Political Consulting. I currently work for uh, some federal and state candidates, but here locally in Charlotte, I'm working for Tarek Scott Bakari in District 6. Candidate filing, first day in particular, is always a, a bit of a zoo. It's always a bit of a right. circus. But behind the scenes, serious candidates have already done a lot before they get to the point where they ink their name on that form and plunk down however much the required filing fee is. Right. 
they should have already filed a campaign finance report with the Board of Elections. If you do that on filing day, you are so far behind because you have to file the paperwork with the Board of Elections, in this case Mecklenburg County, to be able to raise money legitimately. So if you haven't done that, you have a very short window to raise the funds you need to run a, a viable campaign. So most uh, of these candidates will have already started Started raising money, so they can raise money. Sometimes a year in advance, and that's just being smart. I mean, uh, Larry will agree. You've just got to do that stuff. So do you agree? No, I, I 100% agree, and, and and Dan and I disagree in terms of how much money is, is, is needed to win necessarily. Oh, exactly. Because I tend to, to have and – and, and Dan, I think you'll admit my, my campaigns are typically – a little more well-financed. Well-financed, but it's not how much you raise. It's how you spend <laughs> the money. <laughs> Efficiency. But let's but let's talk about this because you got to talk about the nuts. If you're going to do nuts and bolts on this, if you're going to start about what what actually matters more than anything else, and I'm I'm, I'm not I am not the one who said this. This was actually uh, when and I, I will give a lot of credit to our U.S. Senator Tom Tillis because part of the reason Republicans won back the House and the Senate in North Carolina was because folks like Tom Tillis and Phil Berger ran around to new candidates and said. First thing you do before you do anything else is you hire a consultant. But the consultant's job, I mean, obviously day oh, one wait, is money what? here. So let's let's no, go. No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. All right. Well, then tell me what day one job is. Day one job as a consultant is to evaluate the candidate as a whole and decide whether the campaign is viable. Because before you even raise money, you have to determine whether or not the person has the it's demogra- demographics. to win. It's demographics. Because think about it this way. Let's just, let's look at let's assume that you've got a candidate who's got some some history in, in the back that's not going to help him in a primary. Let's say you've got someone. Let's use the city of Charlotte for example. Real great example. If you're running in Republican District Six and you've donated to a whole bunch of Democrats, that's probably not going to be a real good idea because sooner or later it's going to get out that you've donated to a bunch of Democrats. And you got to run in a primary. Now, you're representing somebody who's running as a Republican in District 6. Is yeah. this something that I, I should be <laughs> <No>. anticipating here <laughs> shortly? No, 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 no. That's, that's not going to happen. But at the end of the day, what we really boils down to is that we have to remember that a campaign is nothing more than a marketing strategy to get voters to buy into the brand of government the candidate represents get them to go to the polls and select that brand by using that name identification. So I want to get to the money here in a second, but overall in terms of the vetting process of candidates, Dan, do you agree with what he said there? Uh, Somewhat, but that's kind of the Citizens United viewpoint there. Um, Mm -hmm. And Charlotte, yes, you do look at the demographics, where they are running. You know, if they're running at large as a Democrat in the city of Charlotte, they got demographics on their side. The district stuff gets tricky because – You know, the fastest growing uh, voter population in Mecklenburg County and Charlotte are unaffiliates. You had a fair who the unaffiliates are in that district. Democrats, uh, like I said, on the whole in in the city of Charlotte outnumber Republicans 48 to 22. But that's still a big old pocket of 30 percent unaffiliates that have to be activated. They don't naturally vote. (laughs) I mean, you still have an, an unaffiliated voter. You have your most liberal Democrats, your most conservative Republicans. But that middle part is what you got to figure out. The I always say it's it's uh, elections are demographics and voter intensity. Demographics are what you have. There's not a heck of a lot you can do with that, especially at large race. But the voter intensity, can your candidate excite people? Um, and obviously in some of our uh, city elections when we get 15 to 20 percent turnouts, obviously no one's really exciting anything but the base vote. Mm-hmm. That is a serious problem local candidates is, you know, 66 percent will vote for president. 
15 percent will vote in a mayoral race or 16 percent. And that's actually the general election numbers. The that's the general elections lower. last time. We dropped from over 20 percent to 15 percent. I mean, the highest I've ever seen it is about 30 percent. Uh, that's really sad that 70% of the people are not participating in the people that have more effect on their local lives than just about anything, anybody. That's right. And, 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 and this is actually a very interesting reason why local municipal elections matter. There is only one body of government that can tax your property until you lose it, that can keep you from getting from A to Z, that can uh, put regulations in place that shut down your business, and less than... 20% of the people vote for them. So 80% That's, of the people, if you're in a line at a grocery store with 10 people in it, only, only two, two of them are going to be voting. Only two have voted for city. <laughs> yeah. A part of this podcast that we just heard mm-hmm. is if you are a Democrat, Republican, or Libertarian in North Carolina and you go to file for whatever position it is, it's as simple as filling out your name, verifying that you are a registered member of said party, mm-hmm. and double-checking your address to ensure that you are in fact Registered. Regist- well, not just registered, but you are You're allowed an actual person. Yeah. to run You're in that fe- specific a, district. Yeah. But when it comes to unaffiliated voters, you have to do, you have to jump through what is inherently a pretty sizable hoop, which is 4% of registered voters in whatever district, if it's citywide or if exactly. it's a single district, 4% of those voters have to sign a petition to get you on that ballot. Is that Fair. Well, it happened, it's happened twice now with Michael Zertkal. Uh, in 2013, he ran against Greg Phipps, I believe, in District 4. He got the signatures. And then the lady that ran... Jane Campbell in District 98. Yeah, District 98. That is the Even only though she lost happened. by 14 points, which I was totally happy with. Well, okay. Well, but whatever. Yeah, well, that's a Republican <laughs> district. Yeah, I mean... Um, and th- that is a tall order. What, what are we going to do? Is this, it is a great question because... Pretty soon, we may be getting close to 40% of the people that are unaffiliated, and they have to choose a party. It's already there in Wake County. Yeah, that's what it's like. It's the only political affiliation in terms of North Carolina registered voters that is growing, as opposed to holding roughly steady or slightly declining. Well, let's talk about unaffiliated voters for a moment. Just why, why they should not be allowed to just get on the ballot and register personally. There are unaffiliated voters who are so far to the left of Bernie Sanders that they're upset with the Democratic Party and left the Democratic Party. There are unaffiliated voters that are so far to the right of the Republicans that they think that Mark Meadows and Ted Cruz are uh, too much moderate squishies. That That's one aspect. Then you have all the rest of the folks who decided not to affiliate with a, with a party because they don't like the party aspect or one way or another. The problem with giving unaffiliateds open access to the ballot is that nobody knows what that means. You have a Republican platform. You have a Democratic platform. And I'm going to give the parties a lot of credit here. It's a lot of work, a lot of history, a lot of time, and a lot of effort goes into those platforms. And a lot of time and a lot of effort goes into the local parties, and those parties are organized. Now, unaffiliateds in North Carolina are an oddity because they are the least loyal voters. They will party switch. They'll vote for a Republican for one office, Democrat for another. They are not loyal to the issues like pro-life voters, pro-choice voters, they will flip-flop. And they are the ones who are targeted the most. They are ones who can be influenced the most by money. And an unaffiliated voter is someone who I want to get to on my side because the minute I've got them there, it costs more money for another person to have to get them off that position once I've already captured their, their affiliation. In North Carolina, you'll find most unaffiliateds are conservative on fiscal issues, liberal on social issues. 
And that's where the disconnect is. But the, and that's the interesting thing, because I am an, a registered unaffiliated voter. Mm-hmm. So to me, it seems interesting that we talk about polarization. Mm-hmm. We talk about self-siloing. We talk about people being on one side mm-hmm. or the other side mm-hmm. and not having any kind of grand in between. I asked, actually, Michael Dickerson, what about an unaffiliated primary? Well, you know, what's, what's interesting is if we go back to 1789, I think that's what the founding fathers envisioned. Remember, they weren't they didn't party-oriented like in 1789. But, you know, by 1800, it was, it was on, buddy. Uh, and it got extreme in the 1820s. But I think they envisioned a more independent-type uh, voter, a more unaffiliated-type voter. But after 200-and-something years of party affiliation and, and, and parties, uh, it's going to be hard to break. But honestly, if you think about it purely and you look at the Constitution and Bill of Rights and everything else, I think they, were, they envisioned people to be pragmatic. Um, they didn't envision people staying in office for 30 years because they were in a safe district, either Democrat or Republican. So I think there will be uh, more movements to get unaffiliates, uh, not necessarily a party, but if, like Larry said, if they lower the threshold, so you have to have less signatures to get on the ballot. Um, I, think we, I think we need that unaffiliated voters, Larry. I think it's that, it's that kind of middle ground that we all fight for. Otherwise, we would just stick with our own party and our own little tribe. So, yeah. uh, But the question is, like I said, they're growing. Uh, they're going to be a majority pretty soon. Well, and that and that that, and that actually is, a, is something that I've argued with strategists over, other folks over. I actually am a huge fan of the jungle primary system. I am. And, and for people who don't know what the jungle primary system is, it's basically everybody's in the same primary. Top set percentage go on to the general election. California is actually a great example. Louisiana is also the same. Yeah, where basically it's the top two vote getters that go on to yeah, the general. That's like an all star game. It's not like your election. own team. It's like you, you donate a couple of people to a big all star game and. Huh. See who comes out on top. I mean, I, I do like the party system when it comes to choosing our nominees with our core values as a party. Um, you know, hopefully that's not some uh, cryptic thing you're saying there, Larry. Uh, since you know, no, I like the <laughs> look. I've always been a fan, of, and this is we can actually this is a good transition into the money raise issue. I've always been a fan of let the candidates be the messenger, let the parties do the work. No party should ever have a communications director. I, I don't. I don't believe they need one. Because the, if the candidates aren't properly communicating the message, the party—it's not going to the party getting out there and saying something doesn't do any good. Right. Because the party, at the end of the day, what have we seen from our parties? Our parties. I will. I will they're slamming each other. Right. Right. They're slamming each other. That's great. That's not a real good way to attract people. Well, I, I will go in and say I had a candidate in 2015. It shall be nameless, uh, because everyone in certain races think they have to have pollsters. And I was getting so mad because these pollsters will charge a local candidate $30,000. And no local candidate needs a pollster. Yeah. And then they'll charge a, a, a amount every month to interpret the said polls like we can't read the numbers. But I told the candidate, I said, look, this is a city of Charlotte race. If you don't know what the voters are thinking, feeling, wanting, you don't need to be running. You have to have a pollster from somewhere else to tell you what people in Charlotte are thinking. You need to get your backside out there and learn it. Well, and that's the other part. We talked about the, the sorting, the great mm-hmm. sorting of America. Mm-hmm. You almost in this day and age have to micro-target to certain regions. People in the university want different things from their city government than people in Ballantyne. Sure. People in there, – there are still rural parts north of, of Charlotte and Steel Creek. They want different That's not things. actually new, is it? I mean, because let's think about it, this. No, the, the, it's, the, it's the, not the sophistication of targeting. It's not, no, no, it's not even the sophistication. The newness is the 24-hour media and the fact that there is – Telephones, social media, and everything you say 
is all over it. And I'm going to use your good friend Sue Burgess for a moment. Susan Burgess. Susan Burgess. Right. More former mayor pro tem and school board member. She was wonderful. But Susan Burgess would go from event to 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 event all over the city. And her statement always was, your issue is my most important issue. I will work tirelessly for your right. issue and for no others. In this day and age, if she said that somewhere and it got caught somewhere else, it would upset someone. But without social media and without the papers covering it, she could say that, and it was far as well. And ironically, that not the same problem that kind of sunk Zachary Taylor or one of the early mm -hmm. presidents when the Telegraph was telling yeah. everybody oh, what gosh. his speeches were? Yeah. <laughs> I like history too, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we way back in there. Here we go. Here we go. Both of you have run numerous campaigns. Mm -hmm. At this stage of the game, early on, filing period either just about to end or just closed, how much money do the top-tier candidates need to have in the bank Top tier being, let's say, Charlotte Mayor City Council right now. Wow, because I always... Dan runs cheap campaigns. He's a very <laughs> cheap he's, winning he's, he's, campaigns, yeah. called efficient campaigns. <laughs> I, I am just amazed at how you can spend upwards of half a million dollars to get... You're chasing 15,000 votes literally to win a Democratic primary. 10% turnout is very optimistic. That would be about 30,000 votes. The Democratic primary, you need 15,000 votes. And you're not talking 30,000 for the winning less. candidate. You're talking total votes. Total votes. Maybe you only need, since a 40% rule, maybe you need 13,000 votes to win. How in the heck do you spend half a million dollars to do that? What you do then is become saturation. You, you Instead of three mailings, which I think is perfect, Larry, three pieces of mail followed with phone calls, you get 12, 13, 14 pieces of mail. You get saturated with phone calls, robo and live. Uh, you saturate the airways with your radio ads and then TV ads on cable and, and broadcast. Uh, when is the saturation point? No one's ever told me when do people tune out. I think it's pretty soon after that third or fourth mailing. Okay, I get it. I know what you're for. So what happens is after the third or fourth positive mailing, I'm a wonderful guy, it starts going negative. And no one has proven to me that negative increases turnout. It sets people it in their mindset, but it doesn't really help boost turnout. That's why we're getting turnouts of like, I've seen a, one of my primaries had a one percent turnout in the district a couple of years ago. Negative, and that's the that well, negative campaigning decreases turnout, and that's the point of it. And the point of also all this money. I'm sorry, Larry. I mean, we we were we are legitimate business people and honest. But I always like to say that this big money coming in and these candidates flashing around three or four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand dollars, it attracts so many consultants. Suddenly, you have nine or ten consultants vying for your campaign. That's right overlapping each other. You know, you have your finance, your fundraising consultant, you have your media consultant, you have another media consultant. I mean, it's ridiculous. You don't need that. Like I said, like we talked about a moment ago, you need to know what the people in your your area, your city are thinking, and you need to go talk to them in various ways that don't cost a half a million dollars. All right, Larry, you're going to get your turn here in just a second, but you haven't answered my question, Dan, in all fairness. How much money do you think you need to have for a, to, to be a top-tier candidate Right now, Ask as which it's a different answer for each office. Well, yeah, that's why I said uh, Charlotte mayoral, Mayor, and then let's say I cannot see spending more than a hundred thousand dollars in a mayor's race in Charlotte, especially in a primary. And then uh, let's say for let's say citywide uh, at large district city council, somewhere around thirty thousand dollars will get you the mailing, the the radio ads, the newspaper print ads, and the locals. We don't we don't do the big paper anymore, uh, but we found out the local periodicals can be very effective in a campaign. District. And, 
and then yeah, and a and a district. Oh my goodness, uh, I'll go below ten thousand on these districts because you're looking at people winning with sometimes like fifteen hundred votes. That's you shouldn't have that many people as your Facebook friends. Let's get them to go out and vote for you. <laughs> so I mean, Larry's numbers are higher because I guess Larry gets paid more than me, but um, that's all I can figure. <laughs> well, but, let's find out what Larry's numbers are. For a Charlotte mayor, as a Republican, you need to raise anywhere. Half a million to three quarters of a million dollars. But he, Kenny Smith's already right. on his way. But Larry, also, you're fighting demographics. I'm fighting pretty demographics. hard. You're fighting that hard is the demographics. And, yes, and this is where, for point. me, there is a huge difference in my numbers and his numbers. Primarily because, um, at, at, are we already? I think we're the third place demographic. Yeah, you're at 22% we're the 22% city. We're 22% the city. We are outnumbered by unaffiliateds and Democrats. So our job as Republicans is to turn out our base. That's the party's job and the candidate who can help the party. But the candidate's job is to speak to all these other people and convince them to vote against their either nature or affiliation. That requires money. Mm. Democrats in this city traditionally have been ticket splitters, especially the ones— In 2009. In 2009. They were ticket splitters. Mm -hmm. They would vote for Republican for mayor, Democrats for city council, Republicans for city sure. council, so on. Now it's become more partisan. So what happens is, is that the Charlotte mayor for a Republican has to raise a godly amount of money to be able to get there. But it's possible. It's very possible. Well, and Peacock last, I mean... Peacock went out and raised, what, 300-something thousand dollars? And he came within 4%. He came within so, 4%. Yeah. If you can raise the money necessary to turn out more Republicans and flip more unaffiliateds and Democrats, because you've got, the, you've got a shot. And this is where, and New Jersey's the perfect example. No Republican should ever win in New Jersey, but because of low turnout, it's possible. Well, and people who watch Chris Christie would argue there were certain bridges wow. that were also used as bargaining. And our, <laughs> and our Democratic candidate. That was the second time around. <laughs> Remember, the first time around, Chris Christie was the darling, and he fit in know. Jersey perfectly. He would yell at someone from the stage. They love that yeah, up there, apparently. Yeah. Well, he's going into sports radio, apparently. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, but you also have not, you've answered for mayor, but let's talk. Oh, city, city council, council large is going to cost, it's going to cost in excess of six figures. It's going to be $100,000 or more for Ooh. a Republican. Districts. Districts can cost anywhere from... Well, uh, Kenny Smith in 2013 won his district with fifty-five to sixty thousand. But it was a safe dollars. Republican district. No, but Kate, apparently in the primary oh, raised eighty-five thousand dollars and lost. She had the support of everybody from uptown and lost. This is where the money—you can have all the money in the world, but there is an X amount of of door knocks that you have to make. Mm -hmm. There are so many voters who are like, "I want to talk to you," mm -hmm. and if you don't, if you don't do that. Then you can spend all the money in the world. People are going to be like, well, this guy came and talked to me. All right, so let's end with this, gentlemen. Let's talk about the actual lay of the land for the actual candidates. And this this episode, we're focusing on mayor. Uh, we'll also get into city council, mm -hmm. so feel free to work in the districts. Uh, mm -hmm. Keeping in mind that you both represent certain people, so let's try not to do any shameless, <laughs> shameless plugs here. But let's talk about just overall ground game. And let's start with the big ticket. Let's start with the Charlotte mayor. Um, we know now both parties will have primaries. Right. The primary challenges on the Democratic side seem significantly more um, well organized, I will say, mm -hmm. than those on the Republican side. Um, but let's let's talk about the big issue for mayor in the primary, and I'd like both of your takes on this. Um, Jennifer Roberts loves to put out polls that show that she's ahead, and these polls do mimic what she saw. Two years ago. When exactly. She, yeah, but is she still the front runner in the Democratic race? Absolutely, and she's got. Uh, she is right where she was in 2015, but I think the supporters are more loyal this time. Listen, some of these people have voted for Jennifer Roberts six, seven, eight times since 2004. Jennifer's name recognition is through the roof. 
And, and in one respect, that may be Kenny's disadvantage is, you know, he comes from a district. So he is going to have to spend enormous amounts of money to build his name recognition. Um, I think Jennifer is the clear favorite. I mean, Vi is a very, very competent person. It would be, be a good mayor. Uh, as far as Joel Ford, a lot of Democrats are very suspicious of not just his money, but also some of his votes in the, uh, the North Carolina Senate. He's definitely more towards the He's moderate end of the Democratic moderate spectrum. Moderate to almost conservative end. Uh, and then you have, like I said, the bureaucrat is uh, Vi Lyle. She's very competent, knows government tremendously. She was uh, been involved in government probably 25 years. And then you have Jennifer, who is like uh, a Democrat's Democrat. She's unashamedly uh, liberal. Uh, she is a incredible campaigner. She will campaign all day long. So in a Democratic primary, uh, you really do have to be seen. Jennifer uh, will do very well in Center Charlotte. Plaza Midwood deal with Elizabeth uh, and to the Southern Democrats, which you know we're outnumbered in the South, South Charlotte by Republicans, but those Democrats are extraordinarily progressive and liberal down South. So what happens is uh, it all boils down to the Beatty's Ford Corridor and University for a Democratic vote. And I think she's going to hold her own in both of those areas because Vi is, again, very competent but not exciting. So, here, but here's the bigger question, and I want to get into because let's face it, this is, this is Jennifer Roberts running for the first time for re-election to mayor, and right. there are some issues that have popped up over the last two years right. uh, that we're already seeing being played out in the Democratic primary. Do you think that Jennifer Roberts, clearly you think that she is the, the favorite right now, do you think she passes the 40% of vote threshold that she needs to avoid a runoff? I think she'll be very close. Last time she was uh, through a tremendous effort by the uh, for by the Claude Felter campaign in 2015. Which you were affiliated with, right. it's fair to say. Uh, he, he kept her from getting 40%. Uh, and it went to a runoff, and then he was just... Uh, outperformed. I mean, they both spent a lot of money in the runoff, but that's when I think everybody came home to roost for Jennifer. Uh, Claude Felter had a lot of the same issues as Joel Ford. He's a state senator. He may be the best known and most effective state senator on earth. You come back to Charlotte, and chances are the only people that knew you are people in your district. Mm -hmm. And so that was a clear disadvantage. So I think Jennifer is very close to winning the first round. And then uh, she's going to have to really redouble her efforts to make sure we maximize every single Democratic vote in a general election and what will be a pretty vicious assault against her by, by the, uh, the right wing. And he looks to you, Larry Shaheen. Uh, and it's fair to say you are, you are, not, you are not affiliated with no, any I'm Republican not, no, mayoral no, candidates. No, but, you know, at the moment, what, what, that, oh, that, you, that can change yeah, at any time. No, that's oh, true. the phone's ringing. Um, <laughs> what do you think in terms of is Jennifer Roberts still the – the, the Absolutely, she's the incumbent. No money's been spent yet. We can't, we can't, we can't have a conversation on this until the end of August. Because right now, Jennifer, if Jennifer was not on top in the polls, it would be a huge news story. Mm -hmm. So Jennifer being on top of the polls right now is right because right. Joel Ford hasn't spent any money with these voters. No one has any idea who he is. Vi Lyles has spent some money with some of these voters, but at the end of the day, she hasn't had an opportunity yet to contrast her message with Jennifer's. But this is the interesting perspective that I think Dan. Uh, it, it's almost like no one wants to go negative on Jennifer. It's almost like nobody, because they didn't do it. You, you guys tried last uh, in, 20, I didn't, in 2015. Uh, okay, that's a whole other topic. It was hard. <laughs> it was hard. They talked about education. They talked about revaluation, and that was in the runoff. But it's almost like nobody in the Democratic primary wants to talk about what's going on in the city. And in contrast, on the Republican side, 
Kenny Smith is going to have an opportunity to get his message out, not just to Republicans. After the primary. No. Two opponents. This is what Kenny Smith's primary benefits him. He activates his team. He gets his folks engaged. He starts to go out there, and he gets to spend some time churning in the water. Well, let's say yeah. this, too. Yeah. Because of the way campaign finance laws yeah. are out there, it benefits Kenny Smith to have a primary challenger because he can now run two twice, can- twice right. in essence. And, that's, and so that and increases that, was, that overall that was, bucket that was, of cash. The, that was at the end of that long, long list. But the, the, you don't disagree. I want to know if you – does the Observer not write a glowing endorsement of Kenny Smith for the primary? Probably. I mean, he's really Thank not you. accomplished enough to really be controversial <laughs> – you want to know the truth? Hey, Kenny. <laughs> I would disagree with that, but um, uh, at the end of the day, I think that that's going to be nice. There's going to be a glowing endorsement of Kenny Smith and Observer. But that matters how now? That matters how now? Yeah, especially, you know, no, that's a good point, because especially when it comes to Republican voters who love, love, love to slam in this town in particular. I'm going to share some fun numbers with you. You want to know how many Republicans actually read the Observer? And trust it. Very few. And that's not a knock on them because I actually respect the Observer and the editorial board greatly. Who's reading that that endorsement? It's not uh, Republicans. That's a fair point. It's Democrats and unaffiliated voters who are looking and they're gonna say, Oh, well he can't be that bad. It's not like in the in the it's not like in other races where the observer has refused to endorse anyone because well, they hate everyone. You never know. But they're gonna endorse Kenny. And and I'm gonna say this. If it's Jennifer it's a tougher race for the Democrats because she owns everything that's gone on these last and two years. And she will take responsibility. Vi and Joel do not. Well, and let's talk about that because I, I think you're right. I think she has to because she was the take responsibility, as you said, Dan, because she was the right. face. And you have, you know, two significant issues here. Um, a third waiting in the wings, which, depending on how it plays, does not directly associate back to Mayor Roberts. But the two that do... Are big. No, 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 no. Homicide. Oh, homicide. Okay. Two things. I've already counted that as two issues. Well, no, and, and that's not fair necessarily because the two things that she has stood up and been the public face on are House Bill 2 and the city ordinance and what happened in the immediate aftermath oh, of the right. Keith Scott shooting. Yeah. Right. How does she step up when you already have, like, I mean, it's pretty clear. Yeah, there are a lot of people, Dan, who think that she kind of held Chief, Chief Putney out to dry there for a minute. Let's just start yeah. with the. I, no one, no one came out a winner in that riots. It was, it was not anticipated. Uh, it was not uh, immediately acted on. It wasn't taken seriously. There were some people up in the university area that were out in the street that escalated tremendously, and no one was a real hero in that. I thought, I thought the chief actually did as good a job as he could. But what the people wanted was information. We wanted a press conference. We wanted to hear things. We wanted to be reassured. And that was a breakdown of communications. We just wanted to hear what was going on. Now, the issue with her is, yes, she should have been out there in the forefront talking about what was going on and what is happening. An example I used is the uh, Patrick Cannon was only in office a brief period of time. Uh, that winter, Atlanta had a bad snowstorm, totally mishandled by the mayor, and uh, totally, totally just messed everything up. Patrick Cannon, we had a fairly minor storm, but Patrick Cannon was out there literally every hour telling what the city was doing, what the city is. Shoveling snow yeah. with him. Exactly. That's what you do when you're mayor. You you don't even have a vote on the city council unless it's a tie. So you have to be that reassuring face of the city of Charlotte, and I think she learned lesson learned from her there. Uh, I don't think you're going to see her not react to any other issues. Now, here's one thing, and I'll let Larry take over. When it comes to homicide, for some reason, I've talked to some of my candidates. I said, this is going to be an issue. And they don't want to believe it. 
And they don't want to talk about it. And they don't want to talk about it the way I want to talk about it, but I'm not running for office. Okay, uh, crime was down all during, uh, after about 1995, crime, crime was down tremendously in the city of Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it stayed fairly safe, uh, excuse me, fairly low level until recently. No, here's not recently. The there was a spike. Let, let's let's okay. spike in 09. Okay, like in 09 but here's the deal. Let's hear what he has to say. We're on Every murder is serious and tragic. That means there's a breakdown somewhere economically, socially, drugs, you name it. Every murder is a tragedy. Okay, I've been around a long time, Larry. 1993, it was not an issue when Venrit was running for re-election. 129 people were killed in 1993, including two policemen shot in the head responding to an, a, uh, a call. Okay, we're on target to make about 90 to 95 murders this year, which is still a horrendous tragedy. Guess what? We are double the population of 1993. We're 820,000 now, 420,000 then. The murder rate was through the roof in 1993, and people respected the mayor enough not to make it a tremendous issue in that election. Yes, but at the end of the day, there was also, I'm going to use the word, they were riots, and she let that happen. Okay, we're talking about murder. Um, it doesn't matter. We haven't Dan. given him a chance you, you to bring up the other one. You fair. can't talk about one without the other because you've got – here's the problem. The problem is not the number and in its historical context. It's the murder rate. It, it, no. The number is the problem. The thing is not the number in its historical context. The thing is the immediate context provided with another issue of this conflict culturally, whether it's correct or not, between do we support – defend our officers while providing for means to eliminate those who are corrupt within the system? Or do we take another stance and say that the police are the bad guys and that we have to protect our culture from them? That's what's happening here. And that was personified in the the, the riots and, and actions after the Keith Lamont Scott killing. And politically, there is a conversation to be had about the fact that since 2010, there has been a steady drumbeat of increasing crime over the course. And this most recent issue has to be viewed together as a, a failure in leadership to prioritize public safety while focusing on issues of federal and state importance, and that cannot be understated. She had been in office how long when the riots occurred? A year and some. Okay, who? How about all the mayors that came before? But, but her? No, no, no. But she's served. so the spike. Well, you said the spike started in 2010. That was basically when Anthony Fox took over. Oh yeah, it happened that quickly. <laughs> I think Pat McCrory was mayor for how many years? And we were safe. Really we were safe. But we weren't safe under Richard Venter in 1993. Is that what you're saying? I'm asking you if you can draw if you if you think that drawing a historical the, the correlation between ninety three Larry are economic, but a lot of the crime you're seeing right now, unfortunately, average age of people getting murdered in Charlotte is between the ages of twenty and twenty nine. That is not just a that is a failure of not the police and the system and all this stuff. It's a failure economically. Uh, it's a failure not to enforce the drug problems we're having. It's a failure of maybe well, the police department not being out there in a the community and talking I would, enough. I would agree with that. I would agree there is a community disconnect. And I will agree that jobs and education economic are the silver mobility. bullets. Economic uh, mobility. Jobs and education. Not economic mobility. 
We're not socialists. Our jobs are not to take one person from one place hey, you, and get him to take, another place and have him making more so money. So don't take That's your social security job. then. No, no, no. And don't drive on the public <laughs> roads, by the way, if we're socialists. Public roads, public roads are public roads. There's a difference. We're not – never mind. I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole with you. So let me ask you something. Jennifer is responsible for the uptick in murders? Is Jennifer responsible for yeah. it? Is she going out there and directly causing it? Yeah. No. But she's the leader. The buck's got to okay. stop somewhere. So she gets credit for the 4% unemployment rate in Charlotte then, right? Does she get credit for that? Yeah. Did she set the tax rates for the state? Well, you're, you're throwing no, credit she around. she doesn't. I say thanks, Obama. She's responsible. Thanks, Obama. Uh, <laughs> all right. Okay. Let's talk about the overall city council, the Charlotte City Council, which in many ways has more power right. than the actual mayor. It does. And people is, forget yeah. that. that Econo- yeah. Economic development chair has more power than the mayor. By Public safety that. chair oh, has more power than the mayor. Almost any member of the city council, gentlemen, could be, it could be argued has, has more, more power, power than, than the mayor. mayor. So let's talk overall makeup of the board. There are currently two Republicans mm-hmm. on the Charlotte City Council. Both represent districts. Um, one of them is now running for mayor, and right. he can no longer mm-hmm. hold that district. That, of course, is Kenny Smith. What do we think early on will be the makeup of the next Charlotte City Council in Nine terms to- of party uh, affiliation? Down to two. It's been um- – since 2009, since a Republican won at large, and the demographics were actually more favorable then. That was Ed Peacock. And, of course, he lost in 2011. Last time they won a mayor's race was 07. The thing is, is the word female. Okay, the Democratic, the top one, two, three vote getters in a general election 2015 were, were females. Julie Ice at Valaus, Claire Fallon. The real fight was for two men folk who happened to run uh, down at the bottom, finishing thousands of votes behind the females, and that was between John Powell and Smudgy Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have another strong female slate on the Democratic side. Uh, a majority, uh, a huge majority of the voters in our primaries are females, upwards mm-hmm. of 60% sometimes. Mm-hmm. In a general election, I can't imagine uh, the females are not going to be out in force voting for female names. I mean, I'm, I'm not here to judge. I'm just saying this is happening. What remains to be seen in this municipal election, will the millennials actually vote in an off-year election? They voted in higher numbers in 2016, still nowhere near what a 70-year-old would be voting at. Uh, will they actually get activated and actually, uh, and actually turn out to vote this time? Uh, the what is the Donald Trump effect uh, on this election? I personally want to tie every single Republican to Donald Trump. You know, Larry, you own him. You may say we own Jennifer. We own Donald Trump. Is it fair to make that an issue in a It's all fair because they, they hit fair. us with everything Everything's in the world. Fair. We were all mo- not, the only thing that's unfair is what the law says is illegal. So you're you're predicting nine to two status stasis. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so basically the same two. Republican districts on the council will hold. Yeah, they they have they have held since 1999. It became five to two when District Five became uh, Democratic, which had been Republican. Uh, I mentioned John Powell. I mean, he he ran a very vigorous race, and he seems to be the only Republican that can get votes in all sections of the city John at this win. moment. John should win. Um, and he only lost by a few hundred. Two hundred and eighty-seven votes. votes. Yeah, yeah. two hundred eighty-seven votes came down to precinct one four five, which is Hickory Grove. You're predicting stasis nine two. Larry, what are your thoughts? Eight three. Eight three eight, three or seven four, hopefully seven four. So you've got seven, John Powell. We were just got John about. Powell and Parker Keynes. Those two gentlemen have are seven running. four would be dramatic, Larry, with twenty two percent. Now it, I know the demographics and I know the reality, and we all know the reality. But you've got energized young young candidates, except for John Powell. I don't think we have anyone over the age of what fifty. 
These are young conservatives. Who Not have as young as who, my candidate. Who, who, who <laughs> believe in the basics of government. Basics of government before politics. Don't use it as a sounding board to run for something else. Take care of the basics. So uh, what? that's a great message. What? And that will drive voters, and that will drive voters <laughs> okay, in areas Larry, by traditionally You go. gave me a squishy answer, so I will ask you the question again. I know that your rosy picture is 7-4. What is your reality? 8-3. Oh, I told you, yeah, it's 8-3. Very good. All right. I can, I can, uh, yeah, that's fine. I'm gonna, <laughs> we'll split the difference. We'll split the difference. <laughs> Rosie picture stuff. And look, you know, you can't discount the power of a flipping mare. Kenny Smith flips the seat. It will be news from here to Russia. I don't think he's the man to do There'll it. There'll be though. news everywhere. Always interesting to hear a Republican bring up Russia. Yeah. Larry Shaheen, Republican political consultant. Thank you. Thank you. Dan McCorkle, you're not him. I'm th- I'm, I, speak, I speak for him. After like seven years, we just kind of finish each other's sentences. It's right all right. Now. It's all, all right. right. You've- Larry Shaheen, Republican political strategist. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right. Dan McCorkle, <laughs> Democratic political strategist. Thank you. Thank you. And like I said, we're big guys here. So, you know, we you go, can eat, go eat now. <laughs> <laughs> And that's it for the first episode of Candidate Me. Now, even fake politicians like me like to hear from our constituents. You can email me with your thoughts on this podcast at tbullock at wfae.org. Or if there's a question you have about campaigning, something you've always wanted to know, go to our podcast page at wfae.org and fill out the Ask Candidate Me box on the right. And I want to say a big thanks to producer Erin Wygant for her help with this episode. Next time, we talk efforts to break up supermajorities, both here and in Raleigh. This is Candidate Me.